It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 254, July 10th, 2011. That means we're starting the sixth year of podcasts, recorded July 7th. I've decided something. X-A-R-A is the new way to spell easy. Some people, and I include myself as a former member of the group, think that Zara software is fast but hard to use. The interface is seen as confusing, but that's because longtime software users try to find difficult ways to do something when Zara's designers have worked very hard to make a tool that just works. Once you get over that hard-to-use error, which takes about 90 seconds, you'll start looking for the easy way to do something, and you'll almost always discover that the easy way in Zara is the right way. Zara recently released new versions of Zara Designer Pro and its little brother, Zara Photo and Graphic Designer 7. The applications are similar, but Photo and Graphic Designer omits support for Pantone color matching, color separations, PDFX support, multi-core processors, Panorama Studio, and website creation. There's also a significant price difference. The Pro version is $300 compared to the more basic program's sub-$100 price. $90, actually. Discounts apply for those who own earlier versions and want to upgrade. The applications share a lot of features, and those that aren't supported by the more basic application won't be missed by the target audience. Only graphics professionals need support for Pantone, CMYK colors, and such, although amateurs might like to have support for multi-core processors. And here's what I mean regarding ease of use. Let's say you'd like to create a calendar for the year 2012. You examine the Zara Designs Gallery and you see a section for calendars. You spot a 2012 calendar that looks promising and you open it. Zara now displays a full document with 12 pages, each with an existing photo and a calendar grid. If you're satisfied, you can stop right there. But you probably want to add your own photos, or maybe you just don't like a few of them that are there. For example, the February picture is a blue roof, but let's say you have an irrational fear of blue roofs and would much prefer some other photo. So you examine the design gallery again, this time looking for photos with portrait or tall orientation versus landscape or wide orientation. When you find a photo with an ocean and a sailboat, you think that would be the right photo, but you wonder how to use it instead of what's there, the existing image. Then a light bulb illuminates over your head, remembering that some guy on TechBiter Worldwide said that the easy way is usually the right way and it's the one that works. You try clicking on the new image and dragging it onto the calendar page. When you let go, the new image replaces the old one. Aha! You are beginning to understand the easy concept. Now you decide you'd like to have the calendar grid on the right side of the page instead of where it is on the left side. How? Oh, of course, click and drag. Easy. That is Zara's approach to just about everything. And to help you make the transition from thinking hard to thinking easy, Zara offers a series of movies. The first three, for beginners, will take less than 15 minutes to watch, and they'll get you on the fast track to understanding. Even the movies are easy. 
What's really remarkable is that Zara Designer Pro can handle website creation, edit photos, design graphics, including 3D effects, lay out pages, and even create animations, all in one program. Many years ago, Zara frightened Corel so much that Corel entered into a marketing agreement with Zara. One has to think that the current crop of tools from Zara is raising some concern at Adobe. Not so much because Zara might steal Adobe's high-end customers, that's unlikely, but because it could grab a lot of the users with more basic needs. Adobe solutions that combine web, print, video, and audio are phenomenal. Adobe's applications run on PCs and Macs. Adobe's applications include hundreds of specialized capabilities that are missing from Zara's applications. Adobe's applications are exactly what large organizations need. But users with less demanding needs must certainly be looking at Zara. And Adobe must be wondering what Zara's developers are working on, because each new version adds more powerful features that previously were the purview of Adobe. For example, let's say I have a photograph of some people, but that photograph is marred by an ugly structure in the background. I would like to remove that ugly structure from the background. Check the TechBiter Worldwide website to see how this works. This could easily be done in Photoshop with content-aware fill, but... I wondered whether Zara's Magic Erase would be up to the task. So I selected an area around the ugly structure in the background and then chose Magic Erase. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see how well it worked, and I think it worked pretty darn well. Now note there is a lot of blank space around that ugly structure in the background. That makes the task a relatively easy job for Magic Erase, or for content-aware fill, for that matter. In real-world examples, plan on spending more than 15 seconds to complete the job. You will have to do some cleanup work, but the basic functionality of Magic Erase is amazing. If you download the application in trial mode, all features will be available. There is, however, a separate downloadable content pack, 420 megabytes of it. You don't get that until you've bought the program, and that seems fair enough. The bottom line for Zara Designer Pro 7 is five. Five cats. Zara's developers have improved these version 7 applications with features such as tabbed windows and a fully customizable user interface. They've added useful capabilities and they have retained simplicity of use. So never have so many features cost so little and done so much so easily. For more information, visit the Zara website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Is Google poised, I wonder, to take over your desktop? Maybe you'd like a computer with no hard drive and all the applications in the cloud. What if that computer ran for eight hours on a battery? What if it connected via Wi-Fi or 3G cellular? The 3G cellular is optional. Well, Google is betting you'll want one. So am I, for that matter. But I'm wondering whether it's a wise choice. These devices, called Chromebooks, run on Intel Atom processors. They sell for $500 or less, and that puts them in the same price range as equally powerful, or equally wimpy, Android tablet systems, 
and more powerful Windows netbook systems. Netbooks, after all, have hard drives, and you can install applications on them. That means you can continue to work if you take the computer to a remote location where there is no Internet access. And yes, such places do still exist. But the perceived weakness, at least my perceived weakness, is exactly what will appeal to some people. Use a Chromebook as a portal to data stored elsewhere instead of buying a more powerful laptop computer. Use it to access Netflix or Hulu. Use it to manage your music, stored, of course, on a Google server. IT professionals are unimpressed and unmoved by Chrome. But IT professionals are often not included in buying decisions or they're included late in the game. They're told what the company is buying and instructed to make it work. So, although the professionals dismiss Chrome, they're going to need to understand how to use it. Google says Chromebooks can save a company 70% of its computer hardware budget. So, might some CEOs already be salivating at the prospect of moving millions of former IT dollars to their annual bonus packages? Google has confirmed that it plans to make a desktop model for users who want to attach an external keyboard, mouse, and monitor. For now, though, the offerings are limited to Chromebook laptops from Samsung and Acer. They will be available in the U.S. and most of the EU. 350 bucks for the Acer, 430 for the Samsung. Schools and corporations, doesn't matter whether they're large, small, or non-profit, will be able to rent a Chromebook for less than $30 per month. Schools get a $20 per month rate, and those prices include tech support, hardware maintenance, and software updates. Rental customers also get new computers every three years. Clearly, this is a powerful incentive. This actually, though, could be a product that's ahead of its time. To work, Chromebooks need Internet access, and as I already noted, that's not available everywhere. And if you need to use a 3G or 4G cellular connection, it's expensive. And it's expensive in those locations where 3G and 4G service are available. Now, in 10 or 15 years, inexpensive and widespread Internet access might be available. But not now. Some companies might be well-positioned to use Chromebooks, though. American Airlines is testing them, and America's offices and its airports could all be expected to have excellent Internet access. These little thin client computers have a lot of promise, but I'm probably not going to own one anytime soon. What about you? TechBiter Worldwide has always welcomed questions. Questions are even more welcome on those rare occasions when I'm able to answer them. And it is a particularly auspicious moment when I have an answer that actually has some basis in fact. Well, we have some of those this week. And by the way, if you want to send any questions, there's a feedback form on the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll find a link to the TechBiter Worldwide feedback form. Where else? On the TechBiter Worldwide website. A week ago, I wrote on TechBiter today about Firefox add-ons that a year previously I had said that I use. I wondered how many I still use. As it turns out, most of them are still in use. And that article prompted a question from Chad in Georgia. He said, I'm using Firefox. I think it may be version 3. I should move up to 4, maybe even 5. How do I add an add-on? LastPass, for example. Well, first, let's take a look at the Firefox update. One way to update Firefox is to just tell Firefox to do it automatically. 
I think version 3 placed the control in the same location as version 5, so you'd start by opening the Tools menu and choose Options. You should then see an Advanced option. Choose that on the Updates tab. On the Updates tab, make sure Firefox and Add-ons are both selected. In the bottom half of the box, you can select whether to have future updates applied automatically, that's my preference, or have Firefox just let you know when updates are available. The other option, if you'd like to do the update manually, is to visit Mozilla.com and click the Firefox Free Download button. By default, you'll get the latest version matched to your computer's operating system. Mac users who are still using G4 or earlier processors won't see version 5 because it's not supported by the CPU. Windows users will receive version 5, or if you want, version 4. If you'd prefer some other version, just click the Other Systems and Languages. That's a link below the big red button. As for add-ons, LastPass is a special case. It can be added in the normal way, which I'll describe in a moment, or it can be added by downloading the application from LastPass.com, and there's an advantage in doing that. The advantage of installing the application is that it will install add-ons for Firefox, Chrome, and Internet Explorer. As a result, passwords will be synchronized across all of your browsers. The usual way to install add-ons is to choose Tools, Add-ons from the menu. This will display all installed add-ons. You then click Get Add-ons in the upper left corner, and that displays a page with some suggestions for you. In the upper right corner, you'll probably see a link that says See All, so check that. Now you have a list of all add-ons, more than 6,000 of them. There's a category list on the left, and near the top there's a search box. When you find one you want to add, just click the Add to Firefox button. Note, not all add-ons support Firefox 5. The versions supported will be shown. You can install as many add-ons as you want. When you're finished installing add-ons, you'll need to restart the browser, and there's a restart button on the installer screen. Or just close Firefox, wait a few seconds, and open it again. The more add-ons you have, the longer Firefox will take to start. In many cases, an add-on will display an informational page after the initial installation or following an update. Not all do this, but many do. And they also offer you the opportunity to donate. Most add-ons can be configured, and you'll find those settings on the Tools menu for some and in the Add-ons list for all of them. It's here that you can disable or remove an add-on if you decide later you don't like it. After disabling or removing add-ons, right, you've got to restart the browser. When I'm 64 was a song by the Beatles. It has absolutely nothing to do with the next question, which comes from John. He says, I had plans to install an additional hard drive. I currently have two hard drives, one for the operating system, one for data, dual-booting Windows 7 and Ubuntu. The plan was for one hard drive to be a 32-bit OS with dual-booting Windows 7 and Ubuntu. The other drive would be a 64-bit operating system, also dual-booting Windows 7 and Ubuntu. But now I'm wondering, since I'll have to rebuild the current drive, if an alternative would be better. OneDrive Pure Windows, booting 32 and 64-bit versions of Windows. The other drive, Pure Linux, dual booting the 32 and 64-bit versions of Ubuntu. I have a special AB switch that sends power to whichever drive I want to boot up. When using this, the computer doesn't even see the other drive. Any thoughts pro or con on dual booting with one partition being the 32-bit version of the OS's and the other partition being the 64-bit version of the same OS? First, I want to say that keeping data on a separate drive is an excellent idea. It makes backup easier and is clearly a better way of organizing things. 
If you're going to dual boot four operating systems, would that be quad boot? Assigning one drive as the 32-bit drive and the other as the 64-bit drive makes sense to me. Keep in mind, though, that the 64-bit version of Ubuntu Linux has some significant compatibility problems. Even Ubuntu recommends that most people install the 32-bit version unless there is a compelling reason to use the 64-bit version. So, to me, it makes sense to run only the 32-bit version of Ubuntu and to run only the 64-bit version of Windows. Any current 32-bit application will run under Windows 7 64-bit. The only reason I would consider running a 32-bit version of the Windows OS would be if something that I absolutely needed to use wouldn't run under a 64-bit operating system. That would be some very old DOS programs, for example. If you do decide to go that route, Grub should... uh, Grub. By the way, Grub is the Grand Unified Boot Manager. If you decide to go that route, Grub should be able to sort out everything without the need for a process to switch power from one drive to the other. But there's nothing wrong with doing that, either. In short circuits, storage continues to get larger and smaller at the same time. A few years ago, all of my digital photography memory cards were 256 megabyte cards. That's because it was the most cost-efficient size to buy. Larger cards carried a significantly higher per megabyte cost. More recently, when two gigabyte cards were the most reasonable choice, I bought some for the Nikon Digital SLR. But when I bought a point-and-shoot Canon, the only reasonable choice was eight gigabyte cards. Two of which, highest speed rating, by the way, cost considerably less than one two gigabyte card from a few years ago. You'll see an image on the TechBiter Worldwide website, three memory cards. The one on the right, smaller, a secure digital card, holds 8 gigabytes of memory. That's four times what's in the larger card on the left, a compact flash, 2 gigabyte card. And in the middle, you'll see a little bitty card. It's a micro-secure digital card. The one in the picture is just 128 megabytes. It's fairly old. They are available, though, in sizes up to 32 gigabytes. I generally prefer the compact flash to secure digital just because they're easier to handle, for one thing. But smaller cameras don't have room for the larger form factor cards. When you look at those cards on the TechBiter Worldwide website, they are approximately life-size. If the much-maligned Sony Mavica, much-maligned here recently anyway, could be retrofitted to hold an 8-gigabyte card, that card would be capable of storing at least 200 million really bad images. When they first became available in the 1990s, memory cards were called PCMCIA, which some claimed to be an initialism for people can't memorize confusing industry acronyms. It wasn't an acronym, of course, because it's not pronounceable, but the jokesters had good intentions, and I don't remember what PCMCIA actually did stand for. Compact Flash and Smart Media were the main contenders in the next battle for supremacy. CF cards were larger, but SM cards were more fragile. As handheld devices became more popular, the drive was for smaller memory cards, and today even the SM cards look large next to some of the current offerings. Capacity increases, size diminishes. Those micro SD cards, for example, are just 15 millimeters by 11 millimeters by 0.7 millimeters. If you need that in inches, that's about a sixth of an inch by less than half an inch by less than three hundredths of an inch. 
On TV cop shows, the suspect who lawyers up when the cops start investigating a crime always seems to be the one who's guilty. The Federal Trade Commission has begun an investigation of Google, and Google has hired a dozen lobbying firms. Not just one, two, or three, but a dozen. Wow. Served with a subpoena on June 23rd, a little more than a week later, Google had retained Aiken Gump, Bingham, Capital Legislative Strategies, Chesapeake Group, Crossroads Strategies, Gephardt Group, Holland and Knight, Normandy Group, Prime Policy, the First Group, the Madison Group, and the Raven Group. That in addition, of course, to Google's own internal PR staffs, the folks who made the announcement that Google had PR'd up. This comes as regulators in the United States and the European Union have started to ask potentially embarrassing questions. Google, through its various mouthpieces, said that it is cooperating fully with the probes. And those who want to cast this in a liberal versus conservative light, liberal being business-hating and conservative being business-loving, might have a little trouble doing that in light of the fact that two of the states that have started antitrust investigations, at least according to the San Jose Mercury News, are the rather red Ohio and the even redder Texas, along with the blue New York and the bluer California. One investigation, for example, is trying to determine whether Google is trying to use its position to stifle competition. But that would be evil, wouldn't it? Thanks for listening to Tech Fighter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techfighter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.